Philippians chapter 1, 9 through 11. I told Angelica that I was really looking forward to. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, actually. This is uh, a favorite. Um, A lot of times, people's favorite verse, if you say, what's your favorite verse? A lot of people are going to say Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, uh, Psalm 23, John 3, 16, um, Philippians 4, uh, 13, I can do all things through Christ, Um, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, um, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. There's a lot of very common verses that we kind of lean on and say, oh, that's uh, if if I asked 100 people, probably I would get 15 or 20 different verses that would be very common. Um, uh, one of my favorite verses, and I've been able to preach on it before, but it's from Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. It says, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that you might abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And that's one of my favorites. But this is another favorite right here, and it's become more and more precious to me over the past uh, year or two um, as God's spoken to me from this verse. Uh, How many of you like having to make choices? We make a lot of choices every day. You make decisions and choices all the time. They say that one of the struggles for people that spend time in prison, uh, especially an extended period of time, is that when they come out, while you're in jail, you have very few choices you have to make. They say that a person, while they're in jail, they, they make about maybe 200 choices in a day. Uh, but when you come out and you're spending time, uh, we don't think about it because we just get used to it, but just in a normal day, they say that you probably make about 2,000 choices every day, 2,000 decisions every day. And life can feel like a maze of choices and decisions. Sometimes we think about life like a highway with just very specific exits, and uh, we make these big choices, and that's what we think about, this big choice or that big choice, and otherwise we're just kind of tooling down the highway, but we forget that life is not about big forks in the road, but about little tiny decisions all the time. Um, I remember, and I've, I've told this before in a different context, but I remember my brother and I, I had found this very neat... Uh, little spot off the beaten trail when we were staying at a state park. It was just really beautiful. It was down in a gully, and there was this waterfall, and uh, it was far from any trail, but I had found it, and I thought it was the neatest thing, and so I wanted to show my brother. So the next day, he and I set out early in the morning, and we began walking, but somewhere, somehow, I took a wrong turn as I was walking over those hills and gullies because I wasn't walking down a trail with one turn, and two turns to make, but instead I was walking through the woods and there was constant decisions and choices to make, but I made a lot of wrong decisions. You know, I could have gotten by. There were a lot of times when you can make one decision or the other, and it doesn't mean I'm not going to make it to the spot I was looking for. I just make, make a little roundabout way, and that's okay. But I think when I made the wrong decision, definitely when I came to a very wrong decision is when I saw that fence, that broken down barbed wire fence, and I and my brother clambered over that fence, thereby leaving the state park altogether and wandering around in farmer's fields for hours. We left early in the morning, and we did not come back into that campsite until late that evening. When, when I finally found somebody to direct me back, we, we happened upon a cornfield. We've been walking and walking to try to find this gully. Are you getting the idea that I'm not very good with directions? 
that you would be correct. Uh, we had walked for a few hours. It's late morning, maybe even mid-afternoon. And uh, we finally come to this cornfield. And I say, yes, civilization. I'm not just in the woods. So we begin walking around the cornfield. I walked completely around the cornfield. And I had to ask myself, like, do they bring the combine in with a helicopter? There's no road into this cornfield. And I had come all the way back to where we started. And I turn around and look back. And there was a, an, an easement to come into that cornfield that was completely overgrown over top. So that you couldn't have seen it from the air because the, the uh, trees were, were crossing over the top of that, that uh, little dirt road. And we, we turned around, walked down that little dirt road, and you know what we found? Another cornfield. And walked around that, finally found the farmer's place and climbed over a fence, and we're walking down the road. We finally see a person. And I say to them, uh, do you know where, I think it was Beaver Dam State Park that we were staying at, staying at down near St. Louis. I said, do you know where Beaver Dam State Park, where's the entrance to Beaver Dam State Park? And they say, oh, it's, it's down the road a mile or so. We've been walking all day. And uh, evidently, I've just been getting further and further from the place I wanted to be. Life is full of these decisions and choices, isn't it? And uh, some of us just operate on autopilot, and some of us live in freakout mode, not sure what choices to make. But what we need to do is come to Scripture and see what does God have to say to us about these choices and these decisions that we're making. Let's see what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9. He's, he's been praying a prayer of thanksgiving for this church. Uh, in in um, verse 4, he said, I'm always praying for you. I'm making requests. I'm thanking God for you and, and expressing my gratitude to the Lord for the way that you've walked with me down this path. And, and he's certain that they're going to continue. The one that began a good work is going to be faithful to, to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. But look what he says in verse 9. Now he's going to really illuminate his prayer for us. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prayer that's recorded here from the Apostle Paul, and we pray that you would help us to mine it for its riches, apply it to our lives, to walk in its wisdom, and to be transformed by its word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And this is Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi, and I want it to be our prayer for our church today. What are we praying for? What do I pray for you? that your love might abound. That's the first thing that Paul says. I'm praying that your love might abound more and more. Now, in this prayer, Paul doesn't give any object to what he wants them to love. He just says, I just want love to abound. I just want your love to grow, to overflow. He pictures them as these little fountains of love that are just pouring out uh, love and affection. But nowadays, when we think of love, we think typically, uh, especially in these uh, kind of Uh, statements when love is not given an object. He doesn't say, I'm praying for you to love God more. I'm not praying. He doesn't say, I'm praying for you to love your brother more. I'm not, he didn't say, I'm praying for you to love your families more. He just said, I'm praying for you to love more. Uh, In our culture, because of the way we think about love and what our, the way our world views love, 
it can kind of devolve into sort of sentimentality. Like, oh, just, you know, just, I'm just praying that you'll be filled with warm feelings that will be oozy-goozy and ushy-gushy around you, and everyone around you will feel warm and fuzzy because of your love. But that isn't the kind of love that Paul has in mind. This, this love that Paul is, is speaking of is the love that God has shown us And it's not mere sentiment, but it's sacrificial love. And it's love that is intensely focused on the good of others. He's praying for their love to flow out towards God and then towards their fellow man. A man like Paul who's steeped in the thinking of the Old Testament begins in his mind with those Ten Commandments and with the two greatest commands that Jesus gives. When he says, what is the two greatest commands? What's the greatest command? To love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So it's, it's love that's first focused upon God, that sees in God the good, and then from that standard, then our love reaches out to the people around us. It flows over to those who are around us, but not in mere sentimentality. But instead, we're intensely interested in the good of the people around us. We want to help them. And in this context, in this letter to a church, I believe that Paul's primary thought here is love for God that's expressed in love for God's people. So Paul is wanting these people to grow in their love. Uh, Now, Paul is not reprimanding them, and he's not saying to them, no, you're not very loving people, but I want you to start trying to work on this. Instead, Paul is is speaking to a church that he's already used as an example of godly giving love to other churches. As I mentioned before, this, this church in Macedonia, the church at Philippi, has come up before in Paul's letters to the church at Corinth, his second letter in chapter 8. He says to them that this church, even though it's so poor, they begged to be allowed to give. So they had a love that, that drove them to give, to pour out of that love for others. But Paul is concerned here that this thing that's been such a strength for the church, that they're, they're giving love that's poured out on that church miles away in Jerusalem, people that they didn't even know, they've chosen to love and, and share that love because of their love for God. But you know that sometimes it's easiest to love the people that are a long ways away? <laughs> Have you ever noticed that it's sometimes easiest to love the people that we don't know quite as well as others? And now nobody raise your hand here, but some of us have experienced a situation in life where we really thought we liked somebody and got along well with them and wanted to be with them until we had to spend a lot of time with them. And the longer you spent time with them, the more difficult it was to love them. And and you were just thinking, I don't know what I saw in you before, but here I am, you know, in this this situation. Now you're my roommate, or you're my you're uh, you're my classmate, or you're my coworker, or whatever. And we're pulling our hair out because love is easy to feel. What what's the the proverb that we have in our culture is um, distance makes the heart grow fonder, because sometimes it's easy to love at a distance. Um, someone can seem. Uh, like a wonderful person from a distance. But it's when real life starts to rub on us that genuine love becomes. As a church draws closer together, it can be easy to care about the heathen in other continents more than I care about my brother or sister just down the pew from me. Because 
whenever I'm not close to people, they become these idealized forms of, of whatever. I just, I just kind of fill in their identity with whatever seems like to me that they are. And they don't get around me enough to rub my rough edges or for me to rub on their rough edges. But real people in real life, those are the people that are sometimes hard to love. And so Paul is admonishing them. He's concerned that their love would grow. He wants their love to over, that your love might grow deeper and be an overflowing fountain of love. And he says he doesn't want this love to flow out of ignorance. Like I said, it's, it's easier to love people when we don't know them sometimes, right? But he said, I want your love to grow in knowledge and in all judgment. That's in chapter 1 and verse 9 of Philippians. Paul says, I want your, your love to grow in judgment and knowledge. Knowledge of what? Well, I do want to get to know you, but most of all, I want to get to know God, to, to know him. And my love for him mustn't be based on ignorance. Now, someone can love God in ignorance, but if we love God in ignorance... The more we grow to know him, the deeper we'll love him because we're loving God truly. But some people in ignorance can think that they love God, but what they actually love is their idea of God. I read somewhere and quoted to you all before, I believe it's from a book called uh, Accidental Pharisee, and he states at one point in the book, he says, um, it's it's easy to pick out idols when, when people have turned God into an idol because uh, when you've made God in your own image and he becomes an idol, God hates all the same people you do. And I've recognized in my own life how easy it is to make God just like me, that God likes the same kind of things I like and, and God hates the same kind of things I hate. And instead of allowing myself to be transformed by God's word into his image, Instead, I transform God into my image and then use him to rubber stamp all my own ideas. But Paul is concerned here that they would grow in knowledge. He wants them to learn about God and to learn to love one another. Because we know God is love. And the people that are part of God's family, God loves. So we should learn to love them as well. He says not only knowledge, but in discernment. Um, there's, this word discernment is only used here in the whole New Testament, the particular word that's being used. Uh, a different form of it is used possibly one other time, but it is used in the Old Testament, in the, in the Septuagint, in the Greek Old Testament. It's used several times throughout the book of Proverbs. And the idea, knowledge, is, is filling our heads and understanding the topic. I told you all earlier, I'm not good with directions, right? And the problem with my lack of directional sense and ability is not a lack of knowledge often. Uh, I'm reasonably good with maps. And in fact, uh, I could draw a rough map um, of our church and the roads that I take from our church to my house and from my house over to um, Sister McGovern's place, I could draw the road that goes down to uh, where Jerry 
lived there in the nursing home and then on down to the Palis Hospital. Uh, I can sketch out some of what roads go where. The problem is when I get in the car and try to get anywhere. That's the problem. See, I have the knowledge up here. That's my problem a lot of times in life. (laughs) The knowledge sometimes is up here, or I think it's up here. The problem happens when I actually try to apply that knowledge to real life. Some translations use the word moral discernment here. He says, I'm praying that you'll be filled with knowledge and discernment. In other words, I don't want you just to know about God. I don't want you just to be filled with your head to be filled with ideas about God. But I want you to understand this, to learn a sense of moral discernment until you're able to make correct choices in life. You apply the principles of God's word to the complex choices and decisions that you make every day, and you're learning discernment. This is a practical insight that's born not only of knowing God, but actually doing God's will. One of the most dangerous spiritual maladies is for you to know right from wrong, to know God's word, and to not obey it. For you to live life where you know what you ought to do, but you don't do it. For you to be filled, that Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians, when he's speaking to that church about their problems with spiritual gifts, and he said, knowledge puffs up but love builds up. And when my head is filled with knowledge that I don't live out in wisdom in my daily life, I become more and more proud of that knowledge. And there's a a practical application here in life. All of us probably know someone that has all the answers about something. They have all the answers about healthy food. Or they have all the answers about uh, how to do a particular job or to drive or whatever. But part of the reason why they have all the answers is they never use them themselves, right? It's the bumper sticker, take my advice, I'm not using it. It's the idea that I know everything in my head, but I don't live it out. Oftentimes, those people are the most haughty and arrogant. And the areas in my own life where I'm not applying wisdom to my daily living, is when I'm going to struggle the most with humility. It's easy to be the proofreader. It's easy to be the editor. It's easy to let somebody else do the hard work and then critique and pick apart all the things they're not doing right because I have all the rules and answers memorized. What's much more challenging is to undertake the work of godly living myself to begin that journey of carefully obeying what God's word has to say and walking in wisdom. Because Paul recognizes that life is not a series of black and white decisions. I'm really not concerned for most of us here that are gathered here, those of you that know God and are serving him. I'm not concerned that you're going to to go out tomorrow and this next week and you're just going to be committing sins, just be doing wicked things. And people look on at your life and say, you think you're a Christian and you can do all this sinful stuff? I'm not really concerned about that. I think as you've learned good from evil, good from bad, I think that you're doing your best, I hope, 
You're doing your best to avoid anything that you know it's clearly wrong. You don't do that. You don't watch that. You don't listen to that. You don't enjoy that. You don't feed those, those hungers and desires when you recognize they would draw you away from God. What I'm concerned is not nearly so much your ability to choose good from bad, but good from best. I believe it's Charles Spurgeon that said, discernment is not knowing good from bad, but, but he said, I'm sorry, is, discernment is not knowing right from wrong, but knowing right from almost right. You see? It's so easy for us to say, oh, I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I don't, those would be bad. I don't do those things. But never apply a spiritual understanding to the choices that I'm actually making and saying, am I making the right choices? Let's apply that to our our physical lives, right? None of us are going to go home tonight and uh, sit down to a nice supper of decon and maybe chase it down with some taro ant poison. Um, None of us are going to go home and pour a, a nice cup of bleach to drink that for supper. None of us are going to make a bowl of gravel and maybe sprinkle it liberally with some potting soil and eat that for supper, right? We understand there are some things that they're really bad for you. And in fact, some things, if you eat them, they'll kill you. And you're not going to eat those things. But there might be some of us that would go home and live on stuff that if you live on it every day, maybe things that they're not bad, but they're certainly not all that good either, right? But if we're going to be physically healthy, if we're going to be physically uh, strong and, and, and healthy and avoid uh, being sickly, and, and we're, we're going to have to avoid some things that aren't bad, but they're not all that good either. They're certainly not the best. And that's why Paul is concerned here. He says, I want you to increase in knowledge and in all judgment so that you might approve the things that are excellent. You might test out the things that are excellent. Now, remember this. There are two things that we need to to keep in mind here, and we have to keep them in tension. There are two ditches that a Christian community can fall into. Because Paul here, from the very beginning, remember, right there in in verse 1, he said he's writing to all the saints. And... Uh, he says that he's thankful for their fellowship in the gospel or their koinonia, their, their deep partnership. They're with him, even in the midst of trouble. But there are two dangers that lurk on the right hand and on the left for every Christian community. The one is for you to lear- lose, as a community, for you to lose spiritual discernment and to begin to accept things that God hates and says are evil. And whenever that happens, it always is in the name of love and tolerance and acceptance. We live in a world that's very uncomfortable with making moral judgments. And so it's extremely acceptable today to say, well, this is what, what I believe for myself, right? It's, it's, it's not really controversial for you to say, you know, I, I wouldn't do this for myself, but you do whatever you want to do right? We have that part down as a culture to say, no, um, I wouldn't watch that myself, but, you know, whatever you think is fine. I mean, it's okay. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to judge you. 
But we have to make sure that we apply God's word and his standard in such a way that it, that it has weight for us all as a community. You understand? As a, as a covenanted fellowship of believers, we have to be able to see what's really sin. So when we come to the big forks in the road, there are, as I mentioned earlier, whenever you're making decisions and choices, there are, there's more than one way to get down to Frankfort, Indiana. I can, I can go down 231 and, and 55 and take some of the back roads, and I can get to Frankfort where I grew up. Uh, it might take a little bit longer, but it's not too big a deal. Or I can take 65, and I could go down there. But if I get on 80 and I head west, I'm not going to get to Frankfort, Indiana. I'm going to get to somewhere very different. So there are choices, there are exits that are going to lead us into places that we as a community cannot go if we're going to be the people of God. Are you following me? Does that, do you understand what I'm saying? We can root them in Scripture and we can say, no, 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 no. A thousand times no. But there's another danger that Christian communities can fall into, and I think that we as a church will have to guard ourselves in this way for this reason. We see a culture out there that says anything goes, and we say, we're not going to turn out like that. We're not going to let that happen. So we are determined to make clear moral judgments, and that's good. But there comes a point where we want to know better than God allows us to know. We want to make clear what God hasn't made clear. Because so much of life is navigating through decisions and choices that are, that are complex, that are difficult to determine with absolute certainty. And if I'm going to be in community with you, I'm going to have to be able to figure out a way to get along with you when we don't always agree about everything. Do you understand? And if I don't figure out how to do that, you know what will happen? There won't be any Christian community. There'll be one of two things. Either we're close until we fragment and go our separate ways. And then there's two churches or 16 churches where there used to be one. And this does happen. Or I'll be tempted to just pull back just a little bit because I don't want to get too close because I don't want your problems to rub off on me. And either one of those paths is going to fragment Christian community. Now, you wonder, is Paul actually concerned about this problem for the Philippians? Are you just imposing that idea on this text, Brother Martin? Is that, is that really something Paul's concerned about? Yes, it is. You want me to show you why? Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2. Paul says, I beseech Eudeus and beseech uh, Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Okay? He never tells us what they're arguing about. There's a problem between these two ladies. A, sign- a problem significant enough it made its way into the pages of Scripture. So these two ladies are disagreeing sharply about something. And here's what's fascinating about it. Paul never even stops to tell us what it is that they're disagreeing about. Now, don't you think if their disagreement, if the issue they were disagreeing about was important, that Paul would have told us what it was? You think surely he would have. And he would have done more than just told us what it was. He would have actually made a decision. He does it. He's not afraid of, of, of taking controversial issues and saying, this is what you need to do. This is the direction you need to take. And yet in this text, he doesn't tell them what to do about whatever it is they're arguing about. They're having such a cross-purposes in this church 
there's so much tension here. I'm really grateful. I don't know of any problem between anybody here in the church. I don't know of anybody that's upset with anyone else over something. I'm glad I don't. Maybe there is something there, but I don't know about it. But just imagine the problem is so big, not only Brother Martin knows about it, but the pastors that live miles away that haven't been to the church in years, they've heard rumor that's come to them of these two people in the church that can't get along about something. That sounds like it's a pretty big deal. So on the one hand, it's a very big deal, but it's a big deal because they've made it a big deal. It's not even big enough that Paul stops long enough to tell us what it is that they're fighting about, and he certainly doesn't tell them what they should do about it as far as who's right and who's wrong. He doesn't say, now, Siddiqui, or whatever her name is, uh, you need to listen to, to um, your sister Yodius. You, you, need to, you need to go with her. She, she, has the right, she has the mind of the Lord here. He doesn't say, Yodius, you need to listen to Siddiqui. She, she's right here. No, what he says is, he said, you need to be of the same mind. What is that mind that they're supposed to have? Well, in chapter 2, he says that we're to have the mind of Christ. This is going to be a theme that comes again. What it seems like to me is Scripture is asking us to lay down our own ideas or to hold them loosely enough that we can get along. What does that look like in the local church? Well, what that looks like is saying, you know, I really don't agree with you, um, but I'm going to love and accept you anyway. And then the other person on the other side of it says, well, I really don't think it's a problem, but I love and accept you so much that I'm going to set aside my own preferences to keep the peace in the church. Now, I believe the reason why Paul, he didn't say here which one of them was to lay down their preferences and go with the other person because there's always a danger. The only way this kind of mentality can work of having the mind of Christ is if we, if we have it together and it's not compelled or forced. Because otherwise what happens is one particular person that has the strongest ideas, my wife and I have talked about this quite a bit, what married life looks like, because what can happen is one person has the strongest ideas, and so everything always goes their way. Uh, now, in our household, it wasn't like this, but there is an old joke about a husband and wife that got married, and, and uh, years later, someone asked them about how they got along so well, and he said, well, when we first got married, she said that what she thought would work well is if I made all the big decisions and she made all the small decisions. <laughs> His friend said, well, how, how has that worked out since? He said, well, so far, nothing big has come up. So you see, you see what I'm saying? The way it can work out is everything always goes one way, one way. And it's not going to work. That, that won't work in the church. But what will work, what will lead to the kind of peace and happiness and, and the Christ-like love and brotherhood that God is calling us to is when all of us prefer one another and honor one another and do our best as much as we can to put the other person's preferences and ideas and, and convictions first. Paul is concerned that they learn to discern between things that are important and things that are not important. With things that are important, there's a, the Plymouth Brethren have, a, have a, a motto. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So what we need to know as the people of God is what's important. And then we agree on the things that are important. And then we're able to see the things that aren't important. And so I can say, you know, I really feel pretty strongly about that. 
But it's not so important that I would part fellowship with you over that. Because I've learned to discern what is the excellent thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says in chapter 12, the final verse, he says, I'm going to show you an excellent way. Now, the excellent way that Paul gave them was not a list of rules that they were to follow. He didn't lay out a roadmap for them that had everything figured out already. Instead, what Paul gives them, the excellent way is the pathway of love. Love for one another and love for God that flows out in discernment. He says uh, that he's praying that they'll be filled with with knowledge, judgment, moral discernment, so that they might approve or test. It's the idea of of putting something in the court of law and cross-examining it, questioning it, saying, is this the good way? Is this something important? Is this something that should just be cast aside and not worried about? So that his prayer for them, that ye may be sincere and without offense. In the Greco-Roman culture, in in this era, of course, Um, there's a lot of pottery. Uh, Cheap pottery is thick and heavy, and um, and it doesn't take a whole lot of skill to make. But the more expensive and finer pottery, it's it's thin and it's carefully made, it's glazed and it's fired. But when there are flaws in that pottery and it's been put in the fire, as the fire shrinks the clay, it can have have, uh, cracks appear in the pottery. Um, and obviously, those are, are going to diminish its value. But just like today, oftentimes, companies find ways to hide flaws in their product. In, in that world, the way that they would hide flaws in the pottery is by waxing those spots and then glazing it all over. And when you were done, it, it looked like a perfectly nice piece of pottery. But there was one way to see whether it was really... Uh, a flawless piece of pottery or not, was to hold it up to the light and you could see the wax because the the pottery was so thin and fine that it could actually, it was translucent in the light, but the wax wouldn't be, obviously. And so the finest pottery was pottery that was not only thin and light and beautifully made, but it was pottery that had not been waxed. It was pottery that was, was genuine and wasn't trying to pretend to be better than it really was. And so when shop makers would advertise that pottery, they would stamp it with Sina uh, Serer, without wax. The idea was that this beautiful piece of pottery is exactly what it looks like it is. It hasn't had the flaws waxed over to try to pretend that it's better than it really is. What you see here is exactly what you get. And Paul here is concerned that the Philippians... He says he wants them to be full of discernment, knowledge, to know the ways of God, to walk in them with obedience. But he says, I want you to be since I want you to be real, to be genuine. In another passage, Paul says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels. I don't know about you, but there's some places where I have some cracks in my pottery. Some really deep flaws. And the concern that Paul has here is a concern that we should have today. And it's the fear that we might wax over those flaws. So everyone looks on at the outside and says, looks pretty good to me. 
and we begin to value appearances over genuineness, over sincerity, where we try to look better than we really are. And in a culture that's deconstructionistic and and tearing down claims of moral superiority, and I'm as good as you are, it's easy for us to fall into that same trap of finger-pointing and tearing down. But no, no, this is simply about being open and honest about our strengths and our weaknesses so that when others look on, they can see that we're genuine, that we're sincere, and without offense. That's the idea of not causing others to stumble. So Paul here is not, is not saying, I want you just to don't put on airs. Don't, don't, try to, don't try to strive for moral excellence because that might, you know, make somebody think you're trying to be better than you really are. No. What he's saying is be genuine. Be real all the way through. Don't try to pretend to be something that you're not. But don't give offense. Don't cause others to stumble over unconfessed and unrepented of failures in your life. Be sincere, be real all the way through unto the day of Jesus Christ. He's pointing them forward toward that final judgment. But he doesn't just have a negative vision. Sometimes we can picture our lives as just constantly pulling the weeds of anything that might be the wrong thing. And and our idea of moral excellence is not doing any bad stuff. I think that our culture kind of fills us with that idea. And in the church, we can have the same idea. Because we look around at a world full of sin and we say, I don't do this and I don't do that. And if I asked you, what do you mean by the fact that you're a moral person? There are far too many of us that would begin with that list by saying, I don't do these 15 different things. And, uh, and so we can feel like, oh, I'm a person of moral excellence because I don't do these things. And so many other people, they do them, but I don't. But Paul is not stopping with the idea of moral excellence as a negative. If we, if we imagine a, a, a garden, there's one aspect of gardening that includes pulling the weeds, right? That's part of gardening, pulling weeds. But if all you do is pull weeds, that's all you do, are you going to have a really excellent garden? No. You're going to have a bare patch of soil. That's all you're going to have. You're you're not going to have a a beautiful, lush, fruitful garden. See, to have a garden, it's so much more than pulling weeds. And to be a person of moral excellence filled with all the fruit of righteousness that Paul talks about here, to be that kind of person, you have to plant the Word of God deep in your hearts to water it by the Spirit, to see it grow, and to make sure that you're tending to those plants, you're pruning them, you're developing moral virtue in your life so that you're filled with fruit. It's not about being a barren patch of ground of all the things you don't do. The reason why we don't do those things, if we look at those lists of morally excellent character traits in the negative, I don't do these different things. It's not simply because I don't want to do those things. It's because I have better things to fill my life with. When you pull weeds in your garden, it's not because the weeds, often it's not just because the weeds are bad in and of themselves. It's the fact that weeds prevent the growth of good plants, right? You can't, you can't have a garden that's half weed and half plant and have much of a fruitful vegetable garden, can you? You need to pull those things so that you're, you're 
garden can be full of good fruit. Why are we so vigilant in our lives to pull those plants of lust and anger and hate and violence? Why are, we, why are we anxious to pull plants of greed and covetousness? Why are we anxious to pull uh, plants of, of immorality, to make certain that none of that takes root in our heart and life? Well, it's so that the plants of love and grace and mercy and goodness and justice and long-suffering and patience, it's so that those plants can take root and bear fruit. But this isn't about us just expending our efforts to try to accomplish something. It is about the Holy Spirit working in us the fruit of righteousness. Because if we've been truly born again, we have been transformed by this love and grace of God. As I was studying for this, I was reading the story of a man referred to as Lawrence of Arabia. Um, He was a uh, explorer, archaeologist, um, I believe soldier in the British Army during World War I, just kind of lived an adventuresome life. They made a movie about his life later. And uh, after World War I, he, he came back to France with some friends from Arabia. These men are, are Bedouins from the desert. And he showed them the Eiffel Tower and all the beautiful sights of, of Paris. But there was nothing in the city that they were so impressed with as the faucet in the bathtub. And uh, he fe- like they, they just were so impressed as he turned the water off and on to see a free-flowing water coming into that bathtub. They were just amazed by that. And when the time came for them to leave, he, he found them gathered all around that faucet again in the bathtub, and they were trying to remove it. And they explained to him that in Arabia there isn't much water. And they, he, they knew that what Arabia needed um, was more faucets. And if they could just remove this faucet and take it back with them um, to their home country, that they would just have an endless supply of water. And he tried to explain to them that the faucet was nothing. That the reason why the faucet worked is because it was connected to a vast network of waterworks. And the pressure and the supply of that water flowed through the faucet. But the faucet wasn't the source of all of that. And in our spiritual lives, some of us are trying to walk around with the disconnected faucet. And trying to, you know, squeeze some water out of it. But no matter how we we turn the handles, we feel so empty and so dry and so devoid of any real sentiment of love and grace and these fruits of the Spirit that God is calling us to. And the problem may be that we're just disconnected. We're just not connected to the source. Electrical outlets are great. We replaced a couple of them this week, Brother John, didn't we? Tried to make it so that plug can stay in there a little better. But electrical outlets don't accomplish anything on their own. It's only as they're connected to the supply. And in our lives... We aren't the source of fruitfulness and grace and goodness. The only way that we can give that out is if God is pouring it into us. There might be a few different reasons why our lives aren't marked by that. One reason may be that we've just never been genuinely born again and transformed. I was, um, 
I've thought different times about what a tragedy it is to sit there in someone's living room and, and try to share with them the gospel. And it's so clear that they have such a negative mindset of what it means to be a Christian that in their mind it's that they're a good person. They don't do bad things, so therefore they're, they have Jesus. Just talking to someone so recently, and they just broke my heart as they tried to explain how even as they were far from God and, and so on, that they, that, that they still had God. It just didn't, it didn't fit. It didn't make any sense. And it may be that we might be trying to give something out that we've never really truly received in the bottom of our heart. We've never been transformed by the grace of God. But there are other reasons, too. It might be that our faucet has just become clogged and clotted, that the work of the Spirit in flowing through our life is prevented by a lot of different things. Remember Jesus' parable of the sower and the, that some of this seed fell on ground? It was evidently good ground, but it was ground that, that was choked with thorns and thistles. And so the seed sprung up, but it didn't bear, excuse me, it didn't bear any fruit. And Jesus says this, this fruitless ground, it's because it's become choked with the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. We can run through life at such a frantic pace that we never take the time to receive so that we can give. I just spoke to uh, Angelica earlier this week about how I was struggling, just feeling like I just, I wasn't sure why, I just had nothing to, to give out, and struggling with discouragement. And just, just yesterday, just last night, walking down the center aisle of this church and praying for you, for us, and I felt the Holy Spirit come and begin to help me. And in those moments, it doesn't just instantly turn everything around and just fix everything, but, but I can feel the, the flow begin to trickle a little bit, and I can feel the Holy Spirit beginning to work in my life. And when I, when I have those moments, what I realize is what cuts off the flow in our lives as believers so often is our lack of recognizing how much we need God's help. We try to produce that flow in ourselves, and the only thing that can help this fruitfulness this love, this spiritual discernment to flow out of us is when we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. When we've surrendered ourselves to Him, we're allowing Him to work in our lives. We're, we're pruning out those things that, that bring Him displeasure, that disappoint God, and that offend the Holy Spirit. We've, we've removed those things, but we can't produce life. We can't produce fruitfulness. It's the Holy Spirit taking root in our life. It's the Word of God being saturated into the soil of our hearts that helps us to spring up, to grow, to share, to show what God really looks like. Because what we're doing in those moments, when we show God to the world around us, is we're bringing glory to God. We can get stuck on trying to glorify ourselves. We're too concerned with what are other people seeing in me? What do other people think of me? And, and we can live in a place where we're in bondage to everyone's opinion. What do people in the church think of me? What do people out there in the world think of me? I want to be a good witness, and then I want to be a good Christian, and I want to be a good friend, and I, I, want, to be, I, I want to be everything to everybody. But that only we can only live out a life of freedom and satisfaction 
as we are intent on bringing glory to God. And what that looks like is dying to self. Jesus says, anyone who's going to follow me, let him take up his cross and die and follow in my footsteps. What are you intent on in your own life? Are you living in a morass of choices that just leave you confused and frustrated and uncertain about what you're supposed to do? What you need is the saturating presence of the Holy Spirit. What you need is a full surrender to his will in your life to remove those things that prevent his work from, from coming to fruition, from, from that fruit from really uh, being born in your life, and, and focusing your mind and your heart and your eyes on Jesus. Walking in obedience. My prayer for you is that you would be filled with the Spirit of God, that you might be filled with knowledge and wisdom, moral discernment, so that you can see the excellent things and pursue them. Ultimately, our purpose is to bring glory and honor to God. And that only happens through Jesus living out his life in us. If I understand faith, it's not counting on me. It's the hope and assurance of what I can see. It's the day To be providing more grace faithfully, further proving his great love for me with grace for the moment, all that I need, grace for the moment and faith to receive. The promises given to those who that I